Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about President Biden flunks his Cuba test. Texas GOP Congresswoman Beth Van Dyne joins me in studio. Attorney General Barr blocked a fraud investigation. Can't wait to tell you that story and call it Marxism. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. You've probably been seeing in the news that there's quite a bit of protests ongoing in Cuba. The Cuban citizens in the streets waving, for example, the American flag, holding up words like liberty, help us, you know, handwritten signs, help us, President Biden. So I want to tell you first a response that was given by not Biden himself, but by the Biden Department of Home, um, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He actually said this. I want to read you these words. He actually said, first of all, any attempt by Cubans that attempt a maritime migration to the U.S. will not be allowed into America. Here are his exact words. The Coast Guard, along with our state, local, and federal partners, are monitoring any activity that may indicate increases in unsafe and irregular maritime migration in the Florida Straits. The time is never right to attempt migration by sea. To those who risk their lives doing so, this risk is not worth taking. Listen to this. Allow me to be clear. If you take to the sea, you will not come to the United States. I want to remind you, we've talked many times on this show about what's happening at the southern border. We've talked about the idea that during the Trump administration for four years, he got control of a previously out-of-control border, had very reasonable policies put in place. Among the most central was the notion that when people come to America and they're seeking asylum, that they have to actually qualify for one of the standards laid out in federal law that allow you to, to gain asylum in America. And the Trump administration said, until you can do that, you can come present your case, but you have to RIM remain in Mexico while you're sitting there and we process your application. Most people fleeing Central America, fleeing Mexico and pouring over the southern border do not qualify for asylum in America. This was a great policy. It actually had the impact of causing some people to, to realize, you know, I, don't, I can't make a good argument for asylum. I'm not really being persecuted. Asylum is for people who are being persecuted. They can show they are actually being persecuted in their home country. We're trying to give them refuge. That's why they're refugees. We're giving them refuge and persecution. So as soon as, of course, President Biden took office, or as one website always calls him, he who was inaugurated on January 20th took office, he reverse nearly every Trump administration policy at the southern border that allowed us to maintain a secure border. So the southern border pours again with literally thousands and tens of thousands of people pouring over the border who do not qualify for amnesty, do not qualify for asylum in this country. They're basically fleeing because of poverty, which is not a basis to be granted asylum. And they're coming here, frankly, because they say get signals from back in the Obama era and up to today in the Biden administration, they get signals that America will let you come. No one's gonna stop you. So you can come to our country if you want, because you're poor and you come from a poor country and you would like to have a better life and get all the free stuff that America is advertising that it has. Contrast that with Cuba. The people in Cuba are marching in the streets because they hate communism. They hate oppression. They want freedom. These people are the textbook example of who should be given asylum, should be given refuge in America. They're actually fleeing persecution, fleeing persecution by a government that disarmed the citizenry decades ago, shortly after Castro came to power. By the way, he didn't run as a communist. He ran as a, hey, we're going to overthrow the, pre the previous bad guy. We're going to you know, we'll take Cuba back. And after he took office, then the people realized this guy's a communist. And he had one of his very early administration actions was to say to the people, hey, everyone turn in your guns. You don't need guns anymore. We're all, we're all on the same side now. So the Cuban population is disarmed. 
And now I want to show you what the Cuban government is now doing to the people in the streets who are protesting. I sent Matt, the very wonderful producer, a short clip. It was a length, more lengthy one. I just cut it down about 10 seconds. You can see what it looks like in the streets of Cuba. Okay, these are military officials with tanks are coming with rifles. And this is going through the streets of the cities of Cuba. And bear in mind how you'd feel in America if there were armed troops marching through your main streets carrying rifles with tanks and and you and you'd be frightening anywhere but in Cuba this is the government sicking their military on unarmed civilians who are simply saying please let us have our freedom we don't like communism we actually want to be free this kind of those people who would dangerously cross it is dangerous to cross from Cuba to Florida they're exactly what our migration laws or asylum laws were created to do protect people who are actually fleeing persecution last point in this first five um, there was an interesting study done by Pew Research Center about how most Cuban Americans vote you want to raise your hand guess Cuban Americans vote overwhelmingly Republican or as one Democrat official said in Florida, now how the Biden administration is reacting to the Cuban uprising, you know, Florida is going to stay red for 30 years. These, the Cubans come here to fight socialism, communism, Marxism. They come here for freedom. And they vote for the party that stands for freedom. And so I don't want to you know, imply I know why you would have a statement out of uh, DH, GH, um, excuse me, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas that Cubans can't come here. But you contrast that Cubans can't come here, but people crossing the southern border who are very likely in the view of many, many pundits, Democrats and elected officials likely to vote for Democrats who give them asylum and free education and free housing and free medical care. I don't know. Sounds like there might be a political motive in the decision of the Biden administration about whether or not to support the people of Cuba. More on Cuba later, but for now, that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. I said at the start of the show, we have a guest joining us. She's been on our show several times. Uh, she's in from this area in Texas, North Texas. We're going to talk today with Congressman Beth Van Dyne. She represents uh, Texas Congressional District 24. And she, I will tell you, among other great things about her, this is a race that she won and was viewed to be and actually stated by people in the know in Washington, one of Nancy Pelosi's biggest disappointments. She thought they were going to take back this district and have a Democrat representative uh, not so fast. Beth Van Dyne, in, in addition to representing this district in Congress, she's a former mayor of the city of Irving, a very large city just outside of Dallas. Um, she also, in between being mayor and now being a member of Congress, she served uh, work for the Department of Housing and, and Urban Development Southwest Region. She was a regional administrator for the, uh, from, since 2017, uh, working for Ben Carson, Secretary Ben Carson in the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And so she's worked in a, an extremely important arena uh, in understanding the role of the federal government in helping people under a, the great leadership of Ben Carson, it, it, kind of really thinking through seriously the policies that will help people. So she's uh, had great experience and very, very popular in North Texas and won that seat and she's now in Congress representing us. So please help me welcome Beth Van Dyne. Hi there. It's good to see you. Good to see good you. Back. Okay, so you know, I, I sent you a long list of things I was gonna ask you. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to just start with one thing. Actually, I'm going to go out of order. You, you spoke at CPAC though, this yes, weekend. I did. I've told our listeners a lot about CPAC, and, and you were there. And I actually, I just meant to say, first of all, wasn't it an amazing conference? It was, yeah. I only got to see it on Sunday. I was, I was out of town, but I got to see it on Sunday. And it was so many people, so much energy, so many great ideas. Um, I love the people up on the stage, but even better, I think, were the people in the audience. Yeah, one point I was making to people is, you know, uh, the leftists try to envision or picture people on the conservative side as kind of angry or, and this is yeah. just a happy bunch of people yeah. kind of celebrating America. Optimistic too, I mean, yeah. and, and very proud to be Americans. I mean, and love the ideals that were brought up on stage, very supportive, I think, of one another. Um, and I really, you know, I, they believe that back in 2022, we're gonna get our country back. Oh my gosh, well, that'd be great. I will ask you before I get into, I know you talked there about healthcare freedom. I want to talk yes. about that for a second, but were you there when the woman spoke 
who is, she actually kind of had a, a moment of fame on national television. She is a Virginia mother. She is a, she's from China. She lived under Mao Zedong. No, I missed that. Oh my gosh. I missed it. I, I, she really brought tears to people's eyes because she, she lives in Virginia and she was, she, the reason she was on national television, she went to one of the school board meetings and said, stop teaching my kids critical race theory. Stop teaching these kids to hate each other. Yeah. And she said, this is just what Chairman Mao did to us during the Cultural Revolution. It was really powerful. Too bad more people aren't hearing that. Too bad more people aren't seeing that. I would yeah. love for the, you know, the mainstream media to be taking her, her testimony and, and having her on and talking about it. Oh yeah, well I'm going I'm definitely going to reach out to her. I tracked her down. I chased yeah. her down afterwards and I got her contact information. So I'd love to have Go her ahead, have her on. Have her oh, on. Oh my gosh. And actually for growing up in China, so really having Chinese as her first language, she was very clear too. I know some people I mean, heaven knows I couldn't speak Chinese, but she is just wonderfully articulate and she was really drawing parallel after parallel. So, you know, that great. question was asked during that panel about, you know, what can we do in this audience, right? What can we do to take back our healthcare system? What can we do to take back our country? And I said, you know, it's not, it's not just important to vote for president. It's not just important to vote for Congress, but look at those local races, yeah. mayor's races, city council races, school board races, because this is where we see people coming in with these crazy radical left ideas. The person who ran against me in the, in the general election for Congress got her start on a school board. And then she quit halfway through her first term, but now they have a platform. And they can say we we have served. So be, really be involved, engaged, and willing to run at your local level. Yeah, run. And also, if you think you can't run, the other thing you can do, because so many candidates, I'm sure you and others experience this, you need volunteers. Yeah, you need right. people to actually do the door knocking, do the phone calling, and those kind of things. They may not seem glamorous, but they're that kind of chipping away at a campaign to get to victory. Now, August in da in Dallas, you know, in, in North Texas, knocking doors in August is not fun. Yeah. No, I'm and, not happening. I'm not and we that. had people who were masked, and they had like the worst, <laughs> oh the God. worst suntans because it was right here on their face. But it, it's so important, you know. I mean, yeah. having that opportunity to talk to people firsthand and hear them go where they feel most comfortable, you know, as opposed to, to campaigning like some of our colleagues on the left, you know, from their, their couch and calling it in. You can't do that. You have yep. to go and talk to people. And I think once you really get out there and you listen, you'll hear that the ideas that we see being thrown out from the radical left are not popular. They're not popular at all. Oh, exactly. And they do. The left managers, I often say, they have the best PR firm in the world somehow because they manage to sell really, really uh, radical and oppressive ideas. And it kind of sounds like they're inviting you over to share a cup of, of coffee. I mean, they have a friendly tone to them while they're saying, we're taking all your freedom away, but you're not going to recognize it. So let's just talk about healthcare. So what are, I mean, conservatives would love to have a robust healthcare system without government oppression. So where are we headed on that? We actually just had a, uh, our first meeting today. So what, what has happened is Republicans realized that we lost, uh, we lost a great opportunity back in 2017. You yes. know, we had an opportunity to be able to, to reshape the healthcare debate and we lost an opportunity by one vote. We don't want that to happen again. When we take the House back in 2022, we want to have some solutions. We're not just the party of no. I mean, we listen, we, we get the experts in the room, we figure it all out. Our focus is going to be on allowing people to be able to choose what they want, to be able to choose what is important to them, personalize it to their budget, to their needs, to their family, and be able to have as many choices as possible as opposed to being treated like the one size fits, fits all, all yeah. federal government program. It doesn't meet, it does not meet the needs for all people. And what we've seen since Obamacare started was we've seen rising rising healthcare costs. Yeah. We've seen decreases in access as more doctors are opting out. And we've also seen decreases in quality. People are having to wait months. People are, are, are being denied care. And that's all since we started this one size fits all program. People want to be able to have choices and it empowers people. And it's much more personable to their needs. Okay, so you say choices, to be really clear. You're talking about enabling the private, private insurance sector, sector the to private sector to come up with solutions that meet everybody's needs. As it was, was, was on that panel, you had a doctor who said, you know what, I'm opting out of the system. This is ridiculous. I want to see patients. My focus is on helping as many people as I can. So what he did was he doesn't, in, he doesn't take insurance anymore. What he did was the direct primary care system, that model where he sees patients and they have a menu. They know exactly what their healthcare costs are going to be and he can help more people that way. So that's one, one idea. You know, uh, Chad Hennings was on, the, was on the panel with us as well. Yes, that was Love Chad, yeah. Love Chad. 
comments about the Dallas Cowboys was hysterical, but um, he, he was talking about what the plan that he got for his family because he wasn't getting the care that he needed. So he went with a, a, a religious-based group. That's a, it's, it's a group policy. Yeah, yeah. But it's those things that the private sector comes up with that are so much more um, reflective of the needs of average Americans than what D.C. is going to come up with. So the private sector is going to come up with a range of policies, and what you're really trying to do is encourage that and and take any regulatory enable, burden enable out of the way. Enable innovation and get out of their way. Yeah. You know, right now what we've done is we've stifled it. Um, yeah. And we 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 basically treated all doctors as a commodity, as if you know different places are going to you know, different doctors with different experience levels, different training are all the exact same, and they're not. And I think you know doctors have gotten frustrated. You're seeing you know fewer people in, in enter the healthcare field. Because you know the amount of uh, of respect that they have and ability to have those relationships with patients that is so important oh, has yeah. just gone away. We yeah. need to bring that back to focusing on the patient and doctor relationship and making sure that people have access, but in a way that they feel most comfortable, not that you know DC bureaucrats feel most comfortable. You mentioned that it was at HUD, right? I've seen it. Not only was it a great opportunity to see how we can help people, but it was also a great opportunity from the inside the the belly of the beast of a bureaucracy to see how we hurt people, how we make it so much more expensive and inefficient with all of the, the bureaucratic red tape. And I think what you see Democrats doing is wanting to do more of that. You see it in the transportation bill, you see it with their their their, their voting acts bill that they want to put well, out, we're it's get more to red that. tape, and it's crazy. <laughs> As opposed to, to Republicans who are like, cut the red tape. It's completely inefficient, it makes things cost more, it makes things taste, take that much longer, and it doesn't work. Well, it's also it's an ideological difference. I've been talking a lot in the show, trying to talk about what it means to say Marxism is coming. And, and among the ideas of it is government control over everything is the mission uh, under Marxism. Government control because they, people may genuinely believe as Marxists, we can do everything better than these silly, the, the, the peasants out there. They can't figure ever anything else. So we'll figure it out for them. So your system allows the individual patient or individual person to pursue the insurance they would want, and then the insurance companies have more incentives uh, to create alternative plans, not just have one size fits all. So you're really kind of getting back to trust the people, trust the, the private sector versus trust the government. Yes, Is that fair? Without, without a doubt. It, you know, we come up with these massive comprehensive plans that end up going nowhere because the bigger it is, the more red flags and the more excuses you get people yeah. to vote against it. So I said, what I am, you know, look, I'm pragmatic. Can we at least start pushing it in the right direction? Can we just have a few bills that will give people more opportunity, more independence, more choices? Can we increase the limits, for example, on healthcare spending accounts? So you have more pre-tax dollars to be able to spend on your own healthcare and your own decisions. Can we make it portable? You know, when I left HUD to run for Congress, I lost my health insurance. I didn't lose my car insurance. I didn't lose my homeowner's insurance, but a very intimate part of my of my care I lost. Yeah. And then you're kind of forced to, to look around and figure out where you go from there. And the cost was ridiculous. Yes. It cost me for me and my two kids, it cost $1,200 a month. We each had $6,000 deductibles. By the time we could even use our health care, Right, you know, for, we for had a healthy spent, family, you don't, yeah, yeah. We had already spent so much. I mean, it was the largest bill I paid for a service I never used. That's well said, well said. Okay, we have a bunch of topics I want to hit. We could go on, but I'm, I'm with you all the way. You know, we were, I know you have a um, job fair coming up, which I yes. want to let you, have you talk about. But my little job fair story, which is, you know, we have a service provider at our house who has done, it, 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 the guy comes and cleans the pool. I mean, literally, we have a backyard pool, which I never had growing up. We have, but we live in Texas, and pretty much a lot of people have pools. Anyway, we have this pool guy who just basically kind of stopped coming. The company it was, a, it was a pretty big company, and we ended up talking to the company, and they said, you know what, uh, people are quitting. And we can't find people to work. And even people who, you know, they'll apply for a job. And so they can write down, yes, I applied to blah, 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 pool company. They don't show up for the interview, but they can keep on getting COVID payments or some yeah. other stay-at-home payments. And the idea of disincentivizing work by government handouts, it seems like that's kind of kindergarten economics. And I think the left knows that's kindergarten economics, but they have, so they have harmed our economy. I mean, there are other factors too, like COVID and businesses shutting down. But there are people now, there are businesses needing people, and there are people needing jobs. So tell us about your job fair. 
Well, and your point about, you know, Democrats thinking they know better than everybody else. You think of the look at the financial policies that are coming down right now, increasing the corporate tax rate, increasing capital gains, increasing minimum wage at a time when businesses are frantically trying to reopen. And they're competing with these unextended unemployment benefits across the country, which are paying, in some cases, people more money to stay at home than get back to work. And I don't care what industry you look at. They are all starving right now for employees. Yes, And we yes. have had these of these roundtables with small businesses, with the restaurant industry, hospitality, airline, healthcare, all of them are desperate for good people to start working there. So we just, we had these roundtables just to connect to make sure that we were representing and hearing what the needs were from this district. And overwhelmingly what we heard from, from small businesses, large business, medium-sized businesses, we need employees. Yeah. And we thought, you know, what a better time to partner with all of our local elected officials, to partner and respond to all of the needs that we're hearing from the businesses. And we just decided that we were gonna have a job fair. We were very strategic with the date. We wanted to make sure that it was after the end, you know, June 26th. Of after the, the end of? The unemployment, extended unemployment benefits. In Texas, yeah. In, in Texas, so that was July. So the, the, we scheduled it for July 15th. And it was originally gonna be in a school library. You know, it was gonna be a very small thing. And then we had to change the location three times. We're now having it at the Irving Convention Center. It's going to be Thursday from 1 to 6. Which is tomorrow. We have over 250 businesses signed up. We have more businesses signing up this morning, representing over 7,000 job openings. And what makes this unique is a couple of things. One, it's not just um, entry-level positions that we're looking at. It is every single level that you can imagine, all the way up to executive. The other thing is we wanted to make sure that this was not partisan. This is pragmatic. This is responding to the needs that we see across the country, more specifically within North Texas. So I invited all of the mayors. I invited our, our Texas legislators, our you know, elected officials, regardless of, of, of politics, to be part of it. And overwhelmingly, they've all accepted. So we've had the business community, we've had the elected community, we've gotten our, our chambers that have gotten involved, we've gotten our community colleges that have gotten involved, people are sending it out on their social media hits. It's gonna be a great event. But for us, it was looking at what's happened last year and how the government shut down these businesses. They yeah. put them in a position of being out of work, then they put the positions of the employees to get more money and the small businesses are having to compete with the government. So it's like, you know what? I'm gonna do my part and make sure that we are empowering these businesses, that we are empowering North Texas working families to be able to get back to work. I love that. I mean, it's pragmatic and it's actually it's pragmatic and ideological, but it's pragmatic. Just people need jobs, businesses need employees and someone organizing them and getting them all into one place. Yep. Urban Convention Center, you are expecting a crowd. Yes. That's yeah. a big, yeah. that's We've a big already place. had, I think, over 16,000 hits on the website. And like I said, we have over 7,000 jobs. So come out. And you don't, if you want to register, you can register at myntxjob.com. But come out one to six urban convention center and that'll be to that'll be thursday july that'll 15th be tomorrow yep okay tomorrow. and they don't they don't have to register they can just come no but if you do go to the website what you'll see is you'll see all of the businesses that are listed that are coming and um you can also connect on the businesses to what jobs they have available and what they're going to be looking for Oh, that'd just be so good. And honest to goodness, it is kind of like government's supposed to do yes. not to take care of you and send you your money, but just say, hey, we believe empower in you. Empower you. This is yeah. all about oh, empowering that. the individual. Okay, one last topic I want to hit. So here in the great state of Texas, I know everyone in the nation is talking about it, but we had uh, the majority of our Texas elected Democrats in the Texas House flee the state because they didn't want to deal with an election integrity bill that was being that was on the floor. The uh, irony. The irony. <laughs> <laughs> well, what irony? No, I'll let you get to that. But I mean, it was, you know, this was a special session. I've yeah. mentioned Khalid listeners all over the country. So here in the great state of Texas, you know, we have one, here I'll tell our listeners, we have a session of the legislature for six months every other year. And that they don't get to everything, which they never do, then they loop over and they have a, a special session. And then the governor makes a list of here are the things we must do. Top item was election integrity. And the Democrats decided instead of showing up, they would flee, not only because then they weren't forced to take a position, but they could deny a quorum and not allow things to pass. So, I mean, first of all, your overall reaction to that as a public servant who's been a mayor, who's been a, a member of Congress now. Look, I have gone to council meetings when I knew my vote wasn't gonna count, right? I knew I was gonna be on the losing end. I'm in the minority right now in Congress. 
The fact is, is that I made a pledge to my district. Yeah. If I got elected, I was going to fight for you. I was going to have my voice heard, even if I knew I was going to be on the losing end. You go there and you do your job. You've got people right now on the Dem side and the Texas legislature. The Democrats have have flown private with their with their Miller, you know, Miller Light. They've flown to hide behind Biden I know and Harris. Go ahead. <laughs> but to hide behind Biden and Harris, right. basically forfeiting, surrendering the state to DC. They have taken their job, which was to fight for Texas in Texas, to DC. They are they are saying they would prefer to have that kind of totalitarian regime power over the state versus local control. Right. And you, right. you, you think about the hypocrisy which is involved, they're fighting voting rights. Nobody's denying that the folks in Texas and the Texas state legislature got there because people voted for them. Yeah. They're in the minority, but you are, you are c completely disenfranchising the entire state's voters by by taking off so that they can't even do their job. And by the way, did you hear today that they also get to pay $200 a day per diem? Who, who's paying them? We, the taxpayers? The we, the taxpayers. Oh I my mean, this gosh. is a vacation for these people. Get back here and do your job. I mean, enough already. And you know what else? They don't want to discuss election integrity because actually, as I've said in the show many times- It's a takeover. It's a takeover of, of the from the federal government of, of states' rights, which is defined by the Constitution. This is a complete government, federal government takeover, and they are surrendering our state. Exactly, and in Texas, we have we had many bills, and other states do too, have election integrity bills, and they're running through various provisions. And everyone I looked at closely, including Texas, they have some good things in there, you know, voter ID. These were not, uh, these were not in any way bigoted, unfair. They were not in any way going to limit anyone from voting. They it was were supposed just... to help people to vote. This, right. this would have made it easier to vote. It would have made it harder to cheat. Exactly right. And so what they are saying, though, the Democrats who fled Texas in a private jet, I'm just saying, um, polluting the air. Anyway, they got to Washington no to push for the uh, passage of the, what the Democrats call the For the People Act, or as I say, the man uh, permanent fraud, I had a great uh, permanent mandated fraud or something, a permanent election fraud mandate, permanent election fraud mandate, everything in there. So you, you must have, that was one of your first votes when you were up there, right? Uh, this year on, on for the it? People Act? Yeah. And by the way, I still showed up knowing that we were probably going to lose because Democrats overwhelmingly, all of them supported it. But it's a federal government takeover of our election laws. Again, against completely against the Constitution, which gives the, the power to, to the state legislators. But I mean, the things that they had involved in, involved in that bill were, were crazy. I mean, you're basically having San Francisco laws for the rest of the country. You know, it's, it's right. having on, on you know taxpayer dollars pay for for races for campaigns. It oh, was I extending know. it, you know, lowering the, the age range. I mean. It was it was making it completely easy to commit fraud. Yeah. It's the Vote Fraud Enablement Act. That's, That's what I was calling it. And actually, yeah. one thing in California, which is proven to be a source of fraud, was the uh, idea of, first of all, sending out ballots unsolicited. And so we had people in the election season last time saying, look, I got five at my house. I mean, they're getting unsolicited ballots. For people but they also have ballot harvesting. So you could, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, for people who argue that there was no voter fraud last year, right? There was no voter fraud. Yeah. You, you live here. You, you know that in this district, in Texas 24, we actually had a mayoral candidate that was arrested on 126 counts of voter fraud. Now, we don't know how many actually went through before you know, he was caught. But the fact is that was 126 counts that he was caught and arrested on. Yeah. Now, for people who say that wouldn't have mattered, I'd say talk to Marionette Miller-Meeks, our new congresswoman, also a physician out of yeah. Iowa, who won six votes. Yeah. Every single vote counts. And for us to act like, okay, well, I mean, there's an accepted amount of voter fraud, that's okay. No, if you can prevent it, prevent it. And all of us, Republican, independent, Democrat, should want to make sure that our vote counts, that people who can legally vote, vote, but those who can't, can't. I mean, people who have died, people who don't live in the district anymore. People who aren't be, citizens. If people, you're not, yeah. We should be taking every step that we can to identify how important it is to our democracy. It's the bedrock of our democracy. Yeah, that's another provision for the people was some was some prohibition on continually cleaning the voter rolls and, and cleaning out. So you know, if you were the person who was in charge of the voting rolls in any any jurisdiction, you would figure that was a primary responsibility you had to look at the rules, say, "Wow, look at this. These people moved away." I mean, you'd have to verify it, but it's a primary thing you do, and that was going to be prohibited by 
for the people. Okay, so Beth Van Dyne, tell our listeners how they can find you. First of all, it's great to see you. Oh, thank you. It's good to see you too. It's so it's. I love, by the way, as soon as I finish voting in D.C., I immediately come home because it just feels freedom, right? You hit yeah. Texas and it's so much different than being in D.C. But um, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, um, BethForTexas.com is my website. Love to see you on uh, on, on Twitter because we don't have very many nice Twitter followers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but we're also getting getting active on Rumble and on Parlor. So, um, but, but come out and visit us. Our district office is right in Cypress Waters. Um, but come visit us tomorrow at this job fair. We're so excited oh, about yeah. it. Oh, yeah. The job and fair is a great idea. Hundreds of people are going to be able to get jobs and think about the difference that that is going to make in their lives and in the lives of North Texas. I love it. Beth Van Dyne, thank you so much for coming in. Good to see you. Great to see you. Okay, my friends, I really do urge you to support her. She is just a, uh, you know, she's a fighter, as you can tell, and she's articulate, able to talk about the issues that we care about in a way that's persuasive and substantive, and uh, that's probably why she's such a disappointment to the left because they thought they were going to win this district and they didn't. Okay, so um, I want to hit another couple of stories here today. Uh, one is uh, having to do with Attorney General Barr. And you all know when Attorney General Barr was um, named uh, to become the Attorney General and uh, he replaced um, Jeff Sessions, who was uh, is under um, President Trump, uh, replaced Jeff Sessions and a lot of people said, well, this is great. He seems like such a good guy. You know, this is really exciting, blah, blah. Well, um, many people at the time said, you know, I'm a little worried about him. Barr was seen as someone who was a straight shooter. He'd been AG in the past. And he was seen as somebody who uh, could be trusted by both sides of the aisle, which makes a lot of people all say, I don't know if that really exists. Is there really anyone who can be trusted by both sides of the aisle? But um, people wondered uh, whether or not his commitment to the institution this was one of the main comments about him commitment to the institution the department of justice and as you likely know the fbi is a division of the department of justice that he had an institutional commitment or a commitment to the institution where he would really want to preserve that institution and preserve its reputation in the eyes of voters in the eyes of americans he would probably want to do that um, and concern was expressed, maybe even to the detriment of, or even more than he wanted, to preserve and protect and represent the American people and the Constitution. That w w whether it was going to be, you know, which was going to be overriding, uh, overriding importance to him, the Constitution and the rule of law, or preserving the institutions, which were at the time when he took office, of course, clearly under siege uh, by conservatives who felt that the Department of Justice and the FBI were unduly unjustifiably attacking um, President Trump, which they were. So a lot of people said didn't trust Barr. I will tell you that I want to be cautiously optimistic about him because I think he has some kind of, he certainly is a brilliant man and he certainly understands America and American history. Anyway, what's come out now, and I th think most of you probably heard this story, I'm just going to read you a brief language about it. What's come out now, there's a lawyer named William McSwain William McSwain, and he was a member of the U.S. Attorney's Office. This is the federal level U.S. Attorney's Office in the state of Pennsylvania uh, during the uh, up until recently. And he was and during the time that he was a uh, that President Trump was raising questions, as many people were, about the validity of the elections of 2020. Before I tell you what the letter says, I will tell you about this McSwain gentleman. Um, undergraduate, he uh, finished school at Yale. Um, he joined the Marines as an infantry officer. Not a lot of people out of Yale go to the Marines infantry, infantry officer. Served four years as a platoon commander, then graduated from Harvard Law School, law review editor, so clearly a stellar student. And then he went to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office. So he is, you know, credentialed some people would say the kind of eye roll about the ivy leagues which way that cuts but in his case it certainly indicates his success and achievement as a student as a, as a professional at the u.s attorney's office and he sent a letter to president trump which president trump recently released and the gist of the letter this is a member of the u.s attorney's office william mcswain wrote in a letter to president trump that he mcswain wanted to investigate obvious election fraud in Pennsylvania and was told not to do that by Attorney General William Barr. Now I know that even people today who would defend Barr, some of the defenders would say, well, you know, Barr is just trying to, you know, the, the country was re reaching a fever pitch of tension. 
you know, any further evidence that would come out that would show, yes, there was more election fraud that occurred. You know, maybe Barr thinks it's his job to, to try to keep the country held together, to not have this election fraud evidence be investigated, leave it alone. Um, and that is not the right answer. That's not the ethical answer. That's not the, uh, the answer of anyone who's actually taken an oath of office to uphold the Constitution. What Barr decided, it appears, is that it was better to maintain the peace, the supposed peace or the fragile peace in this country, and fail to allow an investigation to occur to get to the truth of election fraud in Pennsylvania. It really is consequential because Barr pretty much survived during the era of Trump with his reputation more or less intact. And most people saying, because when Barr came out, you remember very near the end of the battle over what had happened in 2020, um, Attorney General Barr did say, he made a public statement saying essentially that there was, uh, that their office had looked into things and there wasn't sufficient evidence of election fraud, certainly not the magnitude to overcome or, or to uh, have changed the outcome of the election. Now, I am paraphrasing, but that's the gist of what he had to say. But the same guy who said that, that there wasn't, they looked into things, there wasn't sufficient evidence, is the guy who then was also saying to William McSwain, don't look into it. Don't look into it. And this kind of melds into another point I want to make about, you know, trying to restore America, restoring our country, and that just the great and extreme concerns so many people have of where we are in this country. There is a mindset among people. We've talked about the deep state idea. We've talked about the idea there are people in Washington who kind of think they are the ruling class. They actually survive. They kind of sit there through their jobs in bureaucracies and agencies as presidents come and go and vice presidents come and go and members of Congress come and go and senators come and go. And these people are entrenched in Washington. Now, I'm not saying Barr is exactly like that. He's not exactly entrenched, but he is someone who is part of that ilk that views themselves to have a bigger role than just do my job as attorney general. It is do my job to preserve this country, do my job to keep things um, safe in Washington, to keep the country stable. And you can't have people too riled up about election fraud and because that may disrupt the peace here. And so he, it appears, was driven by the notion that his preservation of the Department of Justice, of the FBI, of the larger ruling class, the stability of Washington, uh, that was more important than allowing this gentleman, McSwain, to actually investigate what happened. So McSwain's letter, very quickly, starts out, President Trump, you were right to be upset about the way the Democrats ran the 2020 election in Pennsylvania. It was a partisan disgrace. The governor, the secretary of the Commonwealth, and the partisan state Supreme Court made up their own rules and did not follow the law. Even worse, the state attorney general, Josh Shapiro, the very person responsible for the enforcement of state election law, declared days before election day that you could not win the election. Yep, that, that's bad enough by itself. Hard to imagine a more irresponsible statement. And he says, on election day and afterwards, our office received various allegations of voter fraud and election irregularities. As part of my responsibilities as a U.S. attorney, I wanted to be transparent with the public and, of course, investigate fully any allegations. Attorney General Barr, however, instructed me not to make any, any public statements. Attorney General Barr tells him, don't make public statements or put out any press releases regarding possible election irregularities. I was also given a directive to pass along serious allegations to the state attorney general for investigation. The same state attorney general who had already declared that you couldn't win. I disagree with that decision, but those were my orders. As an infantry officer, Marine infantry officer, I was trained to follow the chain of command and to respect the orders of my superiors, even when I disagreed with them. And you know, folks, where we are in this, I'm gonna get off election fraud, except to, to say this for right now. Where we are in this is the Arizona audit is now being reviewed. I mean, the Arizona audit of Maricopa County has occurred. The Arizona Senate is now looking at it. Uh, there appears to be a confirmation by one state senator that, yeah, there, there are problems here. The numbers aren't adding up. We're also very close. If you listen to the show yesterday, you heard our interview with Jody Heiss, Georgia member of Congress uh, who is now running for Georgia Secretary of State 
and he is um, alluding to the fact that as Georgia completes its um, audit uh, of the Georgia elections in Fulton County and other places, it appears very likely that the election outcome was uh, was not accurately reported. That actually it appears that Trump likely won Georgia, as did the two Republican Senate candidates. So we have to just plant this seed. I'm going to go to one more story today, but I want to plant this seed. What exactly is it that we should do? And I, I have many ideas, but what exactly do you do in Georgia, for example, if the two Republican senators won? What's the path forward to fix that? We don't have, this is uncharted territory to beat the band in this country. Uncharted territory. What if you get Arizona, Pennsylvania is now looking at it again. In fact, we'll talk about Biden going to Pennsylvania in just a moment. But Pennsylvania is now relooking at things. Georgia is too. What is the plan? What is the outcome when you, if we do discover that the fact is that President Trump won the, the, the election? What is it we do? And then if you get to that, say, and then what's the path or the vehicle to correct the wrong? And what do you do with people like Mitch McConnell and like Attorney General Barr and others who simply seem to be not interested in, um, in pursuing truth as we just learned that Barr said he wasn't, not interested in pursuing the truth in, in Pennsylvania, not interested in allowing this U.S. attorney to look at these allegations. Those people, it's going to be incumbent on Barr and McConnell to publicly speak up given how they seem to have facilitated allowing the election to be recorded or reported as it was, um, they are going to be responsible, happy responsible to speak up and they have to be responsible ultimately for um, enabling us to figure out how to get around this and get to the right answer. And I'll go back again, one more point back to Barr and then I'll hit one more story. It is easy when you've been in Washington a long time to think of yourself not just as an elected official representing whatever it is, or, or, or uh, someone like Barr, who is attorney general, appointed by the president and, and approved by the Senate. So you've got, you've got a, a particular role to play. But you can get into a larger mindset about yourself that your role is to protect and preserve America so, and its stability and its safety. So if you have allegations that may be true, they may be true, but if they are going to end up um, causing people to be upset, causing potential uh, unrest in the country, you can get tempted to think, well, then we just got to tamp those down because it's not my job really to investigate the truth and find the truth. My job here is to keep things all stable and normal. I mean, and I think that that kind of mindset enters the uh, thinking of people like Attorney General Barr. Just already uh, the country was riled about what uh, about the election outcome, the appearance of fraud, uh, a lot of people in, in various uh, modes, various stages of concern about the election fraud. And you might think if you're bar, you know, my job is to make sure things stay stable, but it's not and it never was. Your job as attorney general or any other elected official, elected, appointed, confirmed official, is to honor the Constitution, pursue truth, and honor the structure of America's government, which is the people the, we have elections and we honor the outcome of those elections. That's their job and honoring the Constitution, even if it seems as though that's politically unpopular or the media is going to criticize you, your job is to honor the Constitution. That is the best and strongest way to uphold the country and keep things, ultimately, keep America intact. One more quick story. I want to talk about, um, I call it, call it Marxism. I've had some people say, and, and you know, well, I've used the word Marxism on this show and, and, and I'm speaking and I have some people, I, I will say, backing up, I've been around activists who will sometimes say, like, if any policy decision they don't like, any, um, you know, decision about a law or regulation or a tax rate, just anything they don't like that the left does and they use, oh, that's communist, that's terrible, that's communist. Well, it is true that the words communism and Marxism and socialism get thrown a lot, around a lot these days in America. A lot and people throw them around and sometimes in a cavalier way and sometimes in not necessarily a precisely accurate way but the fact that the terms are overused and they are but the fact that those terms are overused does not mean that in America we are not watching a Marxist revolution we are just because 
people on the left say, I'm not a Marxist, I'm a Democrat. I'm not a Marxist, I'm a, you know, I'm a moderate Democrat, or I'm a, you know, I'm just a, uh, you know, a Democrat socialist, but not a Marxist. Understanding how that, what that term means and how it's being played out in Washington really matters. Because you and I can discuss on this show issue after issue and regulations and bills and tax policy and immigration policy and we can have disagreements about policies and with the policy should say this and not that we have all sorts of discussions like that but the larger question stepping back from every policy decision is kind of what is the role of government in america what is the right of government what arenas of american life do they have the right to be governing in and what arenas of american life does the government not have a role in America's founding, as I remind you so often on this show, was unique and extraordinary. It was an explosion in world history, a blowing up of the concept of what a government is and what a country is when the founders came along and create, wrote first the Declaration of Independence and then the Constitution. They premised the entire thing, the entire country, on the idea that we have rights from God all men created equal, endowed by our creator, God, with rights, and the purpose of government, the job of government, is to protect those rights. And that same concept and declaration wove its way into the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the whole notion. We are founded on the idea that the individual has the right to freedom of religion and speech and assembly and second amendment and to bear arms and privacy and you know self against self-incrimination i mean all the rights guaranteed in the bill of rights spring from the idea that we're a country founded on a guarantee of individual freedom that's what america is and the utter premise of that is that that is the that is the gold standard that is the basis of government in america and then you have government, of course, to keep, you know, within the structure of that promise of individual liberty, you have a government, the state governments and federal government that do various things, have various jobs. You know, the federal government has to, you know, fund the military and fund uh, the national highways and all sorts of things the federal government does. But the federal government is never supposed to cross the line into the arena of controlling the individual people, the people and their individual's rights. As not what the role of government is. And contrast that with Karl Marx. Karl Marx, his premise idea was basically, you know, he had a tactic he used, I'll get to in a moment, but his premise of thinking was the entire a, a country, the, a country should be based on the idea that they are controlled by the government. And, you know, he ha everyone says, well, you can't say Marxism because the left today is not you know, getting hold of the means of production. They're not owning all the businesses. And so they're not really Marxist because they're not owning the, the means of production. And that is a, a, a narrow-minded and intentionally deceptive argument by the left. The concept of Karl Marx was that what a country should be, instead of this crazy idea America had where people had the right to freedom, the idea of Marx is that the, the purpose of government is to control your life. To control everything and they believe because they believe that they the marxists the leaders are smarter than everybody else they're smarter they're better thinkers and they have the right to control you marx went out of his way to say that one of the things in addition to wanting to have uh, all things economically equal he wanted to redistribute wealth perpetually redistribute wealth take money away from some give it to others government controls and owns everything he directly said Karl Marx, that he wanted to destroy the people's belief in God. That the idea of God was so offensive to him. And the reason the idea of God was so offensive to Karl Marx and every socialist and communist and Marxist in this planet today, the reason that the idea of God is so offensive to them is because when people believe in God and they have a God-given identity and God-given rights and God-given freedom and purpose and individuality, those people are harder to control. Those people won't do what the Marxist government tells them to do. Those people think they have some rights that, that, that cannot be taken away by government. So Marx wanted to eviscerate the idea of God, and he said it. He wanted to eliminate the belief in God, and he also wanted to eliminate the belief in the rights of the individual. 
He said over and over, the individual's not important. Eliminate the idea of the rights of the individual. And this, these two concepts of Marx and many, many others turn on its head. They are utterly polar opposite from what the idea of America is. Marx pursued his, what he wanted to be, which is control over, uh, over all of society. He pursued it by making arguments along economic lines that the reason that people should surrender all power and control over everything to the government was, after all, there is economic disparity. And he wanted to turn, you know, have the bourgeoisie and the proletariat at each other's throats. He used economic disparity to divide society, to end up with a society where you had the people turn against each other and just surrendering to the government. Okay, government, fix it, solve it, take, take care of us here. That is the first point I wanted to make about uh, what Marx, Marx did it by economic disparity and, and deliberately highlighting that and turning people into outrage and resentment against each other. Today's Marxists in America don't use economic disparity, they use race. This is why people in America call critical race theory a Marxist idea. It is intended to divide us. It's the purpose of critical race theory. It's a Marxist idea, just another avenue to get to the same point where society is divided uh, at each other's throats, no longer functioning as a, as a society, as a culture, but instead at each other's throats, everybody turning to government to fix everything. And when people talk about Marxism today, it isn't like every member of the leadership of the Democrat Party has gone to Marxist training camp. When I say they're Marxist, it's not that they've gone to training camp or they've gotten a tattoo in their hand, I am a Marxist. It's that they've embraced this ideology. They believe this ideology. The, the majority, the ruling cabal, the American left, they believe the ideology that their purpose, their, their legitimate role of government in their eyes is to control the people, is to decide how much money you can make and, and, and to redistribute wealth through the power of taxation. It is to tell people, as you will see, you have seen coming, you will see more coming out of the American left, out of Washington today. It's the Marxist ideology that has now become lodged in the, the anti-American left that says we get to tell people how much health care they can have and what health care they can have. We get to tell people under the Green New Deal where they can live and how they can live and whether they can have a car and what kind of neighborhoods they have to have. It is a notion that all of society in America is better off if it's controlled by the left. Now I'll quickly segue into a couple quick stories, but I want to get at this idea of understanding when people say the American left has become Marxist, it is, it is a, the true, it's like saying it's hot in Texas in the summer. It is as factual as that. The left has embraced Marxism, the whole concept that their purpose is to control everything else. So three quick stories. There was a woman who testified, I mean, she spoke at, or she testified in a school board meeting in Virginia, and then she spoke at the meeting, the CPAC meeting I was at over the weekend. I mentioned when Beth Van Dyne was here, she grew up in, um, in China under Mao Zedong. She watched the Cultural Revolution. She watched how the government deliberately just, just worked on agitating the people and turning them against each other. And, and Mao's entire cultural revolution resulted in the deaths of millions of people and the utter destruction of the society and culture. It was an evil and horrible time. This woman named Z Van Fleet, I'm gonna get her on this show. Uh, she agreed to come on the show, we're working on time yet. But she said, she's telling the people at a school board meeting in Virginia, what you're doing with critical race theory is exactly what Mao Zedong did to China. She knows what she's talking about. Similarly, I'll tell you two other quick things, then we'll go to why it matters to you, but two other things that Biden is doing, I mean, right in front of our faces. One is, there was a story about Biden's speech yesterday in Philadelphia. He went to Philadelphia. He went there because people in the Pennsylvania legislature are now saying, Republicans are now saying, you know what? There was something way off in our elections, and now you have the same, the letter I was telling this McSwain guy saying, yeah, there were things wrong in the, in the Pennsylvania election. Biden went there to argue against the idea of any further audit of the election in Pennsylvania. 
He sees the Arizona audits coming. He knows the Georgia audits coming. He knows other states are really closely questioning things now. He's going to tamp down on the idea of an audit in Pennsylvania. But his remarks while he was there, he actually compared election integrity laws where you're trying to make sure that only legal people with a legal right to vote are voting. He compared those and said they were worse, worse than Jim Crow laws. He actually said that. I mean, he says a lot of insane things. I don't even know if he knows what he's saying, but I'm telling you in the, in the context of this discussion about Marxism, the left is attacking election integrity, which everyone should want by making arguments about those laws being racist, calling them Jim Crow laws, like a voter ID constitutes Jim Crow laws. And that's where their, where their head is. But this is, this is another example of what the left does. It is enable, it is for the purpose of dividing us, for the purpose of having us, the average American who pays no attention to politics, they hear the president of the United States goes to Pennsylvania and announces that election integrity laws are like Jim Crow and they're designed to repress free voting. They're designed to, 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 us, to suppress voters. I mean, it's so insane. You hope and you think that 99% of Americans are rolling their eyes or getting angry and saying that is crazy. What a lie he's saying. You hope many people are doing that. But he's saying this because he thinks that making arguments about election integrity being somehow racist will stir up some element, some portion or segment of America to become suspicious about the election integrity laws. And I got something else very quickly. When you notice and listen to his speech, which is pretty much unbearable, if you listen to his speech, he never, ever, ever says what's wrong with any of the election integrity laws he's attacking. He calls them horrible, awful, evil. All these election integrity laws, the Georgia one, the Texas one, and he never says why. He's arguing, he gets up there and argues for, you know, we ought to have fair elections and we ought to have laws that permit every legal voter to vote. Well, duh, everyone agrees with that. It's all, I mean, yes, but he never says what's wrong with any of the laws he is opposing. He doesn't say what's wrong, what's so racist about Georgia's law or Texas law or Pennsylvania. And the reason is because there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing racist, there's nothing unfair, there's nothing even remotely controversial about anything that was included in the Georgia election integrity laws, the, the Texas integrity, election integrity laws, or other places that are doing it. There's nothing, there's nothing racist, nothing controversial, nothing unfair. This is why he never says what's wrong with him, because there's nothing wrong with them. He instead makes an impassioned plea to stand up for the freedom of elections and to stand against racism. And everyone on both sides of the aisle is saying, yes, we're in favor of fair elections. Yes, we, we, all, hate, uh, we all hate racism. We all hate uh, voter suppression. It's not happening. There is no voter suppression. This is a farce made up by him, but again, it's a Marxist tactic. It's a Marxist tactic to turn Americans into suspicious of each other along the lines of race. It's using race to divide us. And then, as he wants, to ultimately try to get support for this most egregious legislation out of Washington, which, as you're hearing Beth Van Dyne and any other, anyone else who's even you know, sentient, actually reading before the People Act of the Democrats recognize, is just an absolute vote fraud enablement system the Democrats are pushing. One other quick thing on, on this Marxism, I, I really urge you to see, the reason I'm doing all this, I, I think it's important to understand, instead of just thinking of we're on issue A versus issue B, because that really misses the point a lot, you've got to see the larger mission of the left. The American left has left the American playing field. They are not trying to do anything remotely similar to what kind of things you do when you believe in America, when you believe in free markets, when you believe in strong, free America. They're not trying to do any of those things. They are instead trying to use their arguments they have on issues of the day, ultimately to end up with more and more control over the um, uh, over American society. And so, uh, oh, one other quick thing, uh, as Marxist conduct, we'll have to talk about another day, but actually a leftist outlet, Politico, kind of blew it. They let people know, they included something so that they put out, then they couldn't un undo it. But the Biden administration is actually working with cell phone companies 
asking them to monitor text messages that contain what they get to label as incorrect information related to COVID. I'm not joking. This is, these are tactics of a totalitarian Marxist regime. They think, and the cell phone companies sadly will probably cooperate, they think that they get to tell the cell phone companies and the cell phone companies will go along and do it, the American people. Now you can't have, you know, citizen here over in this, uh, you know, this one lady or guy, you know, sending a text message to somebody else about COVID that contains information that the government says you're not supposed to believe. So all of the controversy surrounding COVID, effective treatments, all that controversy, the left is trying to say that they think they can have the phone companies monitor text messages and stop incorrect information as they define it, as the government defines it, as Fauci defines it, be included in text messages. If you can hear that and you can't see this is Marxist totalitarian mindset coming out of Washington, then we really are in trouble in this country. I urge you to think about the idea. We're not on policy X, policy Y, Canada X, Canada Y. We're at, we have America the free, with the ideas of the Declaration of the Constitution and the freedom of the individual, or America the Marxist, as Biden is steamrolling this country toward. That's where we are. Object at every level. Protest your cell phone company if this were to begin occurring. That all of a sudden, hey, I sent you a text message telling you, hey, I, 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 yesterday I, I did a budesonide treatment and my COVID's all better. What if you want to write that? The Fauci and the left don't even agree that budesonide works. So they aren't going to let that have that kind of communication happen. When the government thinks they can interfere with and direct and suppress your communication in America, we are in deep trouble. Time for the people who love freedom and love this country to recognize what we're watching. It's not a Marxist invasion from you know North Korea or China. It is the Marxist ideology that now lives broadly and widely in the mindset of the anti-American left, the Democrat Party, that has become their mindset of what they think their job is to control every single aspect of your life. Fight now, not later. At the close of every show, I tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we start our show today uh, talking about Biden flunks a Cuba test. Biden's Department of Homeland Security Secretary adamant about blocking Cuban refugees from coming to the U.S. Refugees are illegally pouring in to the Biden administration's open southern border policy, but a firm Biden administration no to Cubans, people of color, who are fleeing communism. Fact, Cuban immigrants tend to vote anti-communism, pro-freedom. They vote Republican, not Democrat. Biden's Cuba policy is a breathtakingly stark revelation of Biden administration's true colors. Not about welcoming or protecting people of color, not about welcoming immigrants generally, or true asylum seekers fleeing Cuban oppression. Biden's southern border policy is about flooding the U.S. with people who may support the left's Marxist agenda and vote for free stuff from the Democrats. America should be the first country welcoming Cubans fleeing communist oppression. And then we next talked about, on the show today, we talked about the uh, call it Marxism. Uh, no, I'm sorry, we talked about a bar block the fraud investigation. And um, on that one, U.S. Attorney in Pennsylvania, Yale undergrad, Harvard Law, former Marine, wanted to investigate, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, um, wanted to investigate election irregularities in Pennsylvania and was told to stand down by A.G. Barr. A.G. Barr increasingly exposed as a servant of the deep state with allegiance to the ruling class and not to America and the Constitution and the rule of law. Pious, patriotic speeches during Barr's Attorney General tenure look increasingly like purposeful misdirection. Talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Election audit noise, Arizona, Georgia, other states, increasingly loud. Is a reckoning coming? What will Barr, Pence, McConnell, and the entire D.C. establishment do if evidence of outcome-changing election fraud overwhelms Americans? Will they double down, or will they find a conscience, or will their conscience have a say? And I finally call it Marxism. 
and that's what we have to do, call it Marxism. Karl Marx wanted the power of government to control all of life. He said he wanted to destroy belief in God and in the idea that individuals have rights. He viewed men and women as masses to be manipulated, not individuals with God-given dignity and purpose. Marx divided people along economic lines, while CRT uses race to divide America. Marxism and CRT are antithetical to America. Z. Van Fleet, one of CPAC's most moving speakers, a refugee from Mao's Cultural Revolution, says what happened in China is what's happening now in America via critical race theory. Biden administration move toward monitoring, censoring text messages is pure totalitarian Marxism based on the idea that individuals have no right to think or say anything government does not like. Biden's lunatic ravings about voter ID akin to Jim Crow, false incendiary rhetoric designed to divide U.S. along racial lines and to push America toward one-party rule, the one-party rule that will result from the Democrats' For the People Act. Marxism is the ideology that has overtaken the, the left. I often call them the anti-American left. So that, my friends, is our show for today. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can